Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 231 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another little fusion episode where I'm going to drop some fun updates on you, and then we're going to tuck into another little audio essay, this time on the topic of mergers and acquisitions in the spirits world. There have been a couple of really interesting things popping up in my inbox and on my news feeds on this topic recently, so I thought I'd present a couple of very recent case studies, and we can analyze them together to see what they tell us about how spirits brands rise, fall, and evolve, and of course, what all that means for everyday people like you and me. We're going to save our featured cocktail for the audio essay, because it really does a great job helping to tell the story of one of the spirits we'll be investigating. So stay tuned for that, and let's kick everything off with a few really exciting announcements. First, we have a live stream coming up on Saturday, May 28th, 2022, at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Our guest is photographer Ernie Button, who recently published an incredible book called The Art of Whiskey, where he presents close-up photos of the fingerprints, for lack of a better term, that are left at the bottom of whiskey glasses as the spirit dries and evaporates. Hearing myself describe it there, I I get it. I, I get that it sounds a little bizarre, but as Ernie dug into the chemistry and physics responsible for these ghostly after images that remain in the bottom of a whiskey glass after the spirit vanishes, he learned a lot about the art of the scotch whiskey category and the science of fermenting, distilling, and barrel aging these spirits. It's kind of difficult to understand exactly what I'm talking about until you actually see Ernie's close-up photography, but we'll be previewing some of those shots on Instagram this week, so head over there to get a sense of what we'll be talking about, and please join Ernie and me live on Saturday, May 28th, just a couple days after this episode airs at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be streaming live on Facebook and Twitch. And we'll put up a reminder on Instagram so that you can subscribe to notifications for that stream. Another project I'm working on for this summer, which will become a recurring feature on our show if it goes over well, is our new and noteworthy spirits features. With hundreds of distilleries here in the U.S., there's always something new and interesting being released. And the unfortunate thing is that social media algorithms do a lot of work to keep us in our own little echo chambers, making it hard to learn about what might be going on outside of your own little local or whatever sort of digital algorithmic market you've kind of worked yourself into. The big brands, of course, have enough money to break through these barriers with things like paid and targeted ads, but my goal is to try and feature a really diverse set of new and noteworthy spirits with a heavy emphasis on American craft distilleries. We've already got some submissions for our summer new and noteworthy spirits live stream, but 
we're still accepting submissions. So if you're a distiller or if you know somebody who has a spirit that we should taste and review, please give us a shout at podcast at modernbarcart.com and we'll pass along those submissions guidelines. We're accepting all categories of spirits and the goal of this hopefully recurring event will be to feature a wide range of spirit types so that everybody who tunes in will hopefully find something new that piques their personal curiosity. Spots will be limited, so don't dawdle. We've already got a few submissions in the hopper, so get yours in today if you'd like to be featured. Our last announcement is in regards to the very exclusive private tasting event we're planning at this year's Tales of the Cocktail Conference in New Orleans. I got all the details officially firmed up, and now I'm bracing for the inbox storm that I'm about to invite here. There's only about 15 spots left, so... Listen up, pay attention to all the details, and at the end of this announcement, I'll tell you how to reserve your spot. This tasting is sponsored by our friends over at Price Imports, who are one of the leading craft spirits importers in the U.S. The event itself will be a tasting and fireside chat between myself, Henry Price, the founder of Price Imports, and Stefan Kupp of Fassbind, a producer of fine eau de vie from Switzerland. Of course, we're not just going to be gabbing to one another. We'll be leading all of our guests through a tasting of some fine selections from Fosbin's portfolio. If you spent any time around me, you know that gorgeous fruit distillates are just about my favorite thing in the world, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Tales of the Cocktail and the first live conference in three years than by sharing these beautiful distillates with an intimate group of friends. And as if the private tasting isn't enough, there will also be Fassbind cocktails and charcuterie. So if you're planning on attending Tales of the Cocktail in July, I personally can't think of a better way to spend a couple hours. Here are the details. This event will take place on Tuesday, July 26th from 4 to 6 p.m. in an effort to not overlap too much with any official Tales of the Cocktail programming. And it'll be hosted at an undisclosed location in the French Quarter. To reserve your spot on the guest list, all you gotta do is email podcast at modernbarcart.com and let me know that you're planning to attend. In the week leading up to the event, I'll write back to confirm your attendance and also share with you the precise location details. As a thank you for being a podcast listener, this event is free of charge, but seats are limited, and it's a true first-come, first-served situation. I've already had a few folks slide into the guest list from my personal cohort, which means we've only got about 10 to 15 spots left depending on when you hear this. So don't delay. If you're going to be in New Orleans on July 26th, please join us at our secret location in the French Quarter from 4 to 6 p.m. local time for a fireside chat with Stefan Kopp and Henry Price and an awesome tasting of Fassbind Eau de Vie that is sure to be one of the highlights of your visit to the Crescent City. And now that we've made it through our announcements for the episode, let's turn our attention to the topic of mergers and acquisitions in the spirits world. On May 10th, 2022, Grupo Campari, aka the Campari Group, acquired Pecan Aperitif, from Diageo for 119 million euros, which is about 125.5 million US dollars. 
This headline caught my eye for a panoply of reasons, including the fact that I still have yet to try this aperitif on its own. That is, I've only had it once or twice, and only then in the cocktail format. It's one of those spirits where I keep reminding myself to pick up a bottle next time I see it on the shelf, but it's not one of the most popular or common ingredients here on the East Coast, so it's constantly falling off and then re-emerging on my radar. Kind of makes me wonder if anyone out there listening is in the same boat when it comes to this or any other spirit or mixer. At first glance, this acquisition of pecan aperitif struck me as a bit of a non-news item. In terms of prestige or market power, it kind of felt like trading a pawn for a pawn. It's not like Campari sold Sky Vodka or Diageo sold Tanqueray. Diageo simply handed over a minor member of its overall portfolio to one of their competitors in exchange for cash. It's like when you hear about a sports team trading cash considerations and draft picks. Is it meaningful? Sure. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen, but it's kind of hard to get excited about when you're just kind of a casual fan watching from the sidelines. The more I thought about this deal, though, the more it seemed like a great way to introduce our listeners to the way that the vast majority of spirits and cocktail ingredients are traded on the global market. But before we go deeper into the inner workings of international corporations with multi-billion dollar valuations, let's first explore the history of pecan aperitif to understand how we arrived at this exact inflection point in the global drinks world. Pecan aperitif, pecan being a French last name spelled P-I-C-O-N, was invented in the late 1830s by a Frenchman named Gaetan Picon, who resided in the south of France but was stationed in Algeria as a member of the French military. While he was deployed, he found himself in a hotbed of the Mediterranean spice and herb trade and was also confronted with the imperial reality of insect-borne illnesses. Like the British and the Dutch in the Far East, Pecan and his comrades regularly consumed quinine in the form of chinchona bark to stave off malaria. And just like the invention of so many other beverages that would find their way into fancy bottles and cocktail bars in polite society, Pecan aperitif began its life as medicine in service of a colonial military agenda. After pairing his medicine, which was equal parts chinchona and gentian, with a macerated and distilled base of dried orange peel, and sweetening the brew with caramel sugar, it was bottled at 39% ABV and called Amer Pecan, Amer being the French cognate for the bitter signifier Amaro. Pecan went on to open distilling operations for this beverage in the North African regions of Constantine, Bone, and Algiers before going on to create a domestic distillery that would produce it in Marseille in 1872. In terms of its flavors and rise to popularity, Amer Pecan represents a really fascinating bridge between orange liqueurs, and bitter aperitifs that were both extremely popular during the middle of the 19th century in France. If you'd like to get a bigger picture of this landscape, there's a couple resources on the podcast that I'll point you to. For more on the orange liqueur side of things, listen to part two of our recent History of the Margarita series in episode 227. 
that talks about things like triple sec and Cointreau and Grand Marnier. And then for more on the bitter aperitif side of things, check out my interview with Jake Parrott of House Alpins back in episode 153. Without getting too far into the weeds here, I think it should just be pointed out that once you get a grasp of what happened in the cocktail space in the U.S. during the Gilded Age, it's really worth examining what was happening elsewhere in the world to truly understand how global beverage trends evolved. So those two episodes that I just mentioned are great resources to give you that bigger picture. Americon made its way overseas in the late 1800s and early 1900s, finding its way to the west coast of the U.S. thanks to the discerning palates of Basque immigrants, who would have doubtless been exposed to the product on their home soil and then sought it out as a familiar taste when they emigrated to the U.S. This brings us to our featured cocktail for this episode, Pecan Punch. To make it in its most authentic form, you'll need one and a half ounces of an Amer Pecan substitute, like Torani Amer. I'll explain why you need a substitute in a few minutes here. Quarter ounce of grenadine syrup, like the true grenadine syrup from Pratt Standard, available on modernbarcart.com. One and a half to two ounces of a high quality sparkling or soda water. Topo Chico is always a nice option in this respect. And then finally, one half ounce of cognac. Combine the pecan style aperitif substitute and grenadine in a rocks glass or a small highball glass with ice. Top it up with a couple ounces of sparkling water or club soda. Give everything a gentle stir to combine, then top with that half ounce of cognac as a float and garnish optionally, but optimally with a lemon twist. The origin story of pecan punch is heavily debated, but it can be almost definitely traced back to a hotel in the Bay Area, either the Vasco in San Francisco or the Noriega in Bakersfield. As I mentioned a second ago, this was a Basque immigrant beverage. This population initially emigrated to the U.S. to seek their fortune in the gold rush several decades earlier, but due to the fickle and brutal nature of mining, many of these folks soon fell back into the alpine agrarian lifestyle that mirrored their traditional professions in the Pyrenees, namely herding and hunting. So now we know where this beverage came from and how it made its way to the U.S., but why is its signature cocktail called a punch? Well, this is probably an artifact of a beverage that had already been popular in the San Francisco area for several decades by the time Amer Pecan arrived, that cocktail being Pisco Punch. So if you make a cocktail with Pisco and you call it a Pisco Punch, then if you were to make a cocktail with Amer Pecan, why not call it Pecan Punch? It's kind of hard to argue with that simple line of reasoning. As the Basque diaspora spread across the Western US, the pecan punch became a favorite libation in many parts of California, Nevada, and Montana, having very noteworthy popularity in places like San Jose, Bakersfield, Elko, and Reno. In fact, there have been numerous attempts to make it the official state libation of Nevada, but unfortunately, none of these attempts have been successful to date. At face value, this cocktail is somewhere between an upside-down new-style cognac daisy and an Aperol spritz. 
at its best, which is to say on ice and with that crucial splash of soda water, it's a refreshing complex libation with the capacity to charm even the most discerning of palates. But even if you were an early disciple of this format and forced to construct it without the benefits of ice or that carbonation, it would still make a passable, if boozy take on a scaffa, which is a type of cocktail made at room temperature and with little to no dilution. If you'd like to learn more about this little corner of the cocktail universe, the Scaffa category, I'd recommend starting with Southern Teague's book, I'm Just Here for the Drinks, and working your way out from there. A few decades after the invention of Pecan Punch, Prohibition took effect, followed by the Great Depression and World War II. So while it's possible that American servicemen may have acquired a taste for Amer Pecan while expelling the Kaiser from France in World War I, they would have had an extremely difficult time sourcing it when they returned home. This is where a California drink syrup company called Torani enters the picture. You may be familiar with this brand name from the row of pump bottles lining the coffee bar that you stare at while waiting for the barista to wrap up your grande non-fat caramel vanilla mochaccino latte. But aside from its flavored syrups, Tarani does produce one lone alcoholic product, Tarani Amer. Although there's very little hard evidence pointing to a definitive date, at least one source claims the company began manufacturing this American rendition of Americon in 1925 to address the very market gap I just described. This moment, though initiated by the cold, impartial hand of capitalism, represents a crucial branch in the pecan aperitif family tree, because while Tarania Mare continued its course here in the U.S. at 39% ABV, or 78 proof, remaining faithful to the product it was designed to replace, the pecan aperitif formula in France underwent a number of dilutions and reformulations in following decades, dropping to 25% ABV in the 1970s, and then even further to 18% in the late 1980s. This is why I stipulate using a pecan aperitif replacement in our pecan punch recipe, because if you walk out of the liquor store today with a bottle of pecan brand aperitif, it's not going to act the same way as the original product around which the cocktail was designed. Today, there are two primary flavors of pecan aperitif, pecan bière and pecan club. The former designed to be mixed with beer and the latter for mixing with dry white or sparkling wines. From what scant evidence is available online, it appears that the Klub version is a bit more faithful to the original Amer Pecan in terms of bitterness, which is, again, derived from gentian and chincona, while the Bière version is a bit milder to accommodate for the presence of bitter hops in beer. Now, the question remains, why did the Campari group, owners of Campari and Aperol, go out of their way to acquire another red-orange-flavored bitter aperitif? They've already got two, they're both wildly popular, and they have signature drinks sort of designed around them. Why not just focus on those? Well, I did a little bit more reading, and it turns out that Campari has been very busy in France and its former colonial territories recently. In 2019, it acquired Martinique-based rum producer Romantilise, 
or Rum Antilles, responsible for several popular brands of rum agricole. And in 2020, it acquired French distributor Baron Philippe de Rochilde. So if we're looking at what this deal, what this acquisition of Picon Aperitif by Campari from Diageo can tell us overall about the plans and corporate strategies of certain booze conglomerates when placed in context, the acquisition of Pecan seems to be part of a multi-phase strategy for winning the hearts and minds of the French drinking public. And, of course, their pocketbooks. Pecan Aperitif could also be kind of a useful arrow in Campari's quiver as consumer sentiment and other large brands continue to focus on low ABV drinks. While this style of drinking has been a popular trend in France and much of Western Europe for quite some time, it's a movement that's still on the rise, still gathering steam here in the U.S. and presenting bartenders and enthusiasts with a new product to use in their next low ABV session drink might just be a strategy that can help drive demand for this product here in the U.S. Overall, I think we're at a wait-and-see moment with this deal. Obviously, it's still very young, and obviously it would be kind of nice if the Campari Group decided to resurrect a version of the product that's true to the original formulation, but exactly what the future holds for Pecan Aperitif still remains to be seen. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, you've heard me talk about Near Country quite a bit over the last year, and I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, but they've upped the ante yet again, and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis, or you can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. As a companion piece to the Pecan Aperitif transaction, I wanted to also mention a duo of domestic brand sales that caught my attention recently. And I thought this was a nice compliment to the Amer Pecan story because, you know, these are US-based transactions rather than international ones, and because it took a bit of piecing together on my end. One stray headline turned into a tangled web of threads that I needed to untangle before the whole situation really took shape and made sense to me. So try and follow along here. And uh, I think this is a, another great case study in like reading a headline and trying to figure out all of the things that that entails. 
So my reading process began when I came across an article about blue coat gin being acquired by American spirits conglomerate Heaven Hill. This is the same Heaven Hill whose workers went on strike for several weeks late last year, so I'll let you do your own research to figure out how you feel about the company in general, but we're not here to talk about their employee relations, we're here to talk about their portfolio. The Google link that I clicked on read, Blue Coat Gin Sold to Heaven Hill. So imagine my surprise when the article it brought me to was titled Kensington's New Liberty Distillery Acquired a Bucks County Booze Maker and the Deal Could Change the Craft Spirits Landscape. Now, I'm not a smart man, but I know that Heaven Hill isn't located in Bucks County, PA, and I also know that New Liberty Distillery doesn't make blue coat gin. So how is all this tied together? Well, it turns out that this story is a lot like a set of nesting dolls. And the doll at the center of it all is a distiller and entrepreneur named Robert Castle. Back in 2005, Castle co-founded Philadelphia Distilling, the first distillery to operate in Pennsylvania since Prohibition. He was instrumental in getting Pennsylvania's liquor laws rewritten, which paved the way for over 100 distilleries that have opened in the state since then. Blue Coat Gin, of course, was one of Philadelphia Distilling's inaugural products. 11 years later, in 2016, Philadelphia Distilling was sold to a Miami-based ownership group called Samson & Surrey. So when I read the headline that Blue Coat Gin was sold to Heaven Hill, it's not saying that Heaven Hill really wanted an East Coast gin brand. That would be a very narrow view of what actually happened. In fact... They acquired Samson and Surrey's entire portfolio, which includes Few Spirits, based out of Evanston, Illinois, Widow Jane Whiskey, based in New York, as well as Mezcal Vago, Tequila Ocho, and Bren French Whiskey. So that headline saying that Heaven Hill acquired Blue Coat Gin in January of this year would be like you handing me a cake and calling it a bag of flour. It's not accurate, and what you're actually giving me is a whole lot more complicated than you're making it out to be. By acquiring Samson and Surrey back in January, Heaven Hill greatly diversified its portfolio, which has been anchored by American whiskey brands like Evan William, Elijah Craig, Larceny, Henry McKenna, and Old Fitzgerald, as well as other popular spirits like Deep Eddie Vodka, Rittenhouse Rye, Dubonnet Aperitifs, and Domaine de Canton Ginger Liqueur. But this is only part of our little game of nesting dolls. In addition to acquisitions that impact sales and distribution of spirits at the national level, this story also involves an interesting regional play that was the true focus of that article I clicked into, expecting the focus solely to be on Blue Coat Gin. Earlier this month, May 2022, under the leadership of President Robert Castle, Millstone Spirits Group, owners of Philadelphia-based New Liberty Distillery, announced that they had acquired Faber Distilling, which is the Bucks County, Pennsylvania operation referred to in the title of the article. Although I've never really interacted with Faber and their products, apparently they made their mark on the craft spirits renaissance by purchasing, flavoring, and bottling spirits that they sold at very reasonable price points. This sort of put them at the low end, quality-wise, of what we would consider craft, in that they weren't really doing much actual work, but they also filled a market gap, and a really important one at that, when it came to price. 
This acquisition of Faber Distilling landed Robert Castle and his existing brand a 160,000 square foot manufacturing facility with two high-speed bottling lines, setting them up to become the dominant regional distilling operation in the greater Pennsylvania area. So what we have here is a tale of two acquisitions. Heaven Hill acquires Samson & Surrey, which contains as a member of its portfolio Philadelphia Distilling, and by extension, Blue Coat Gin. And Millstone Spirits Group acquires Faber Distilling, which sets them up to scale their existing product lines and manufacturing capabilities, capturing a great deal more of the regional market share in that sort of North Mid-Atlantic region. The common denominator here, as I mentioned earlier, the nesting doll that started this whole game is Robert Castle. Without him, there would be no Blue Coat Gin, and all the other details of this series of transactions would remain in an alternate universe of unrealized possibilities. I've had the chance to judge Gin next to Rob, and I can confirm that he has a remarkable palate, including the very rare ability to trace flavors in the glass back to process-based flaws or decisions, but even if I hadn't had the chance to share a judging table with him, my main takeaway from this bifurcated story of acquisitions at the national and regional level would be that I need to pay more attention to this person, Robert Castle. I need to learn about the work he's done, and I need to pay attention to the work he continues to do because he seems to be the central node that a lot of these large-scale deals all tie back to in the end. So now that we've kind of taken these two case studies, one at the international level, kind of dealing with a very historical brand, and one at a more domestic level, dealing with a newer brand with Blue Coat Gin, what are our takeaways here? Well, it would be easy to say that like this is a very esoteric thing, right? You could simply make the observation that you know, Eric, I know that your news consumption diet is probably very different than mine. Probably involves a lot more specialized media and a distinct selection bias for news pertaining to the beverage world. You probably see a lot of this stuff that I don't. Well, that may be true, but the purpose of the two case studies I presented here is to give you a couple different ways to take a story about a brand or a product being sold from one major company to another and mine that story for details that will tell you a more detailed and interesting story. As I mentioned earlier, it's easy to read a headline about a brand or product acquisition and think of it like two sports teams trading players. But if you're really interested in what's going on behind the scenes, in the stories behind the headlines, then you should start sniffing around these news items like a dog sniffs around a set of animal tracks. One of my favorite quotes is from American humorist James Thurber, who wrote the original story called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. He said, Everyone should strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. This is what the dog sniffing around the tracks is trying to figure out. Where did this thing come from and where is it going? If you add the human element to this metaphor and insert the question of intent by asking that last critical question why, then I think you're just as well equipped as I am to walk up to a news item about a spirit or a brand, look at everything that's being said, 
and everything that might be omitted and generate a crisp, well-informed take on what it means for you as a consumer and as a spirits and cocktail enthusiast. I'm Eric Koslick. Thanks for taking the time to break down some interesting headlines with me here in this little audio essay episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these or any other mergers, acquisitions, product developments in the spirits world. So always feel free to reach out to me at podcast at modernbarcart.com. And finally, please be sure to tune in live this Saturday, May 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time to watch my conversation with spirits photographer, Ernie Button. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of historical and mergers and acquisitions research by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.